Though touted as perhaps the best in the world, the American medical system is filled with hypocrisies. Our healthcare is staggeringly expensive, yet one in six Americans has no health insurance. We have some of the, the most skilled physicians in the world, yet 100,000 patients die each year for medical errors. Going beyond sick care requires informed and empowered patients. This is achievable through price transparency and unbiased quality care that meets both public and private health insurance regulations. This podcast aims to explore the intricacies of quality patient care through thought-provoking conversations with providers, healthcare executives, corporate CEOs, technologists, and patients. We'll also seek to provide you with simplified actionable paths to feeling good and living well. Welcome to episode seven, the, the dark side of compassionate care. With um, with us today, we have Dr. Nee Darko, who is a trauma sergeant, entrepreneur, and podcaster, and the best, and also a best-selling author. And he is ma- the master masterpiece of podcasting. So he'll be sharing his background with us, um, really looking at what compassionate care looks like on the other side. We will dive into the reason of why physicians go through burnout. They really want to provide compassionate care, but there's the other side of the story where there's a lot of burden that comes with that. So we'll dive into that and then how to come out of it successfully. So welcome to the show, Dr. Darko. Hey, Dr. Muhammad. Thank you for having me. Pretty excited to be here. Yeah, can you kind of dive into um, a bit about your background and how you got started into the medical field? Yeah. So, um, you know, I uh, grew up in New York City and then also uh, grew up in New Jersey. Um, I'm the son of uh, two immigrants from Ghana, West Africa. Um, and um, we grew up in New York and um, I grew up watching TV. Um, so basically I was watching, you know, a whole bunch of different things on TV, including sports and comedy and so forth. And I fell in love with, you know, watching doctors on TV. So, you know, Heathcliff Huxtable, Doogie Howser, MD, um, anything that was related to medicine, I don't know why, but I just really had a, a strong affinity to. And it continued when I got older and older. And, um, you know, I, I thought about becoming, you know, going into sports and I'm not very tall. I'm just an average body uh, build. So I knew that I wasn't going to have much of a career in sports. Um, but, <laughs> you know, you know, watching things on TV and just kind of seeing, you know, how a doctor's life is. And, you know, I just for me, it's just a strong affinity to that. So, you know, that's kind of. The, the career path that I chose and, you know, started doing different uh, shadowing activities in that. Um, got an opportunity to do some shadowing activities right before I went into college. And it really solidified that that was what I wanted to do. So, you know, for example, um, I grew up uh, right outside of Newark, New Jersey, and um, I was going to Lehigh University and they had a pre-matriculation program. And um, got a chance to shadow an alumni of Lehigh University who worked at, uh, at as a trauma surgeon at this hospital. And that night really just trying to change my life, you know, from, you know, the people that he took care of to really being in charge of a team to also at the same time, you know, you know, not only just taking care of the patient, but also taking care of the family was just something that I just found really inspiring. And it was really tough. And I knew that was going to be tough, but I just figured that that's what I really wanted to do. And since then, I've just been on this straight path, you know, single-mindedness of purpose, very myopic and what I want to do. And, um, you know, I ended up on the other side being very successful in that. So, and that's where I am now. 
And 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 you mentioned sort of your your path. Has it always been a straight line? Uh, what are some some? Is it is, was it one of those straight career paths, or did you had some difficulties um, in in your path of um, becoming a um, a sergeant? What are some of oh, those yeah. challenges that you face? Oh yeah, I mean that's what makes things interesting, right? Um, I I don't know many people who have had a straight path. Um, but I know for me, um, you know, one of the biggest difficulties was getting into medical school. So I actually ended up having to take two years in between graduating from college and going into medical school, mainly because my application wasn't strong enough. And also at the same time, I didn't take a very, uh, encompassing look at, you know, what I could do and where I would properly fit in from a medical school standpoint. So what I mean by that is the school that I went to, most of the people there were applying to the big Ivy League type medical schools. And I decided to do the same thing for myself when my resume really (laughs) was saying, you probably need to look at like mid-tier medical schools or schools that are, um, you know, not in the Ivy Leagues. Um, and because of that mistake, you know, I ended up applying to really these schools that I probably should not have applied to and I didn't get in. Um, so during those two years, I got my application stronger. I ended up being a graduate assistant um, for the track and field team and cross country team, which allowed me to um, continue my passion working with those two sports. Um, but also at the same time, being a grad um, assistant and doing some grad work in in biology and some other uh, classes just to make my application stronger. And then during that time also, I got an opportunity to discover, you know, just different medical schools that are out there. I got a chance to discover osteopathic medicine. So I took a more, I'd say I took a more even keeled, more um, sensible approach to applying to medical schools. And the results were a lot different. Um, But also once I got into medical school, I was really hungry, you know, because I was just had this chip on my shoulder of not getting in the first time. So I just knew that when I took that time off, I was like, man, I want to be in school so bad. Um, So once I got into medical school, it was really um, was a great opportunity because I actually ended up not going to school where I grew up in New York and New Jersey, which was a blessing in disguise. I ended up going to school in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, to this uh, medical school called the Kansas City University of Medicine and Biosciences. And by far, it was the best decision I ever made in my life. Um, I made some really long-lasting friends there. I met my wife there. Um, From a professional standpoint, I really made a lot of strides there that I think for myself I probably would not have made if I had stayed closer to home. Um, And then from there, um, I went to residency down in Atlanta, down in the A. Um, with Morehouse School of Medicine, which was another amazing institution working with um, people who really need the care. So I was at a large um, indigent hospital called Grady Memorial Hospital, and I did my general surgery residency there. And then after that, um, I went down to University of Miami and worked at another large indigent hospital and did a year of trauma critical care. And that has been, um, was a really great experience also. And then from there, I just uh, started working as a, um, as a general surgeon, as a trauma surgeon, mainly in a locum tenens, independent contractor uh, situation. And then I also um, took an employed position. And I've just been kind of straddling the, the line between being an independent contractor and being an employed physician. And, and that, that, that's so amazing how you, 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 you remain very flexible in your career path so far. And one of the things that I wanted to, you mentioned you were graduate assistants for um, the track and field team, which then kind of tells me 
that's a little bit of sports medicine. How did you pivot it? I don't want, I may not want to actually go on this track path to do sports medicine, um, even though you're, you're a graduate, graduate assistant applying to medical school, but you've got uh, all the exposure to, exposure to sports medicine. Was it something that picked your interest or did you always knew you wanted to do um, trauma, become a well, surgeon? That's a good question. So my first, my first experience, uh, the one that I mentioned before I went into college was with a trauma surgeon. So, you know, when you're at that age, that's all you think about, right? You're like, my first experience is what there is in medicine. So I thought that was it. So I was just like, man, I want to be a trauma surgeon. This is amazing. When I started to be a graduate assistant, you know, I got interested in sports medicine, um, but I just kind of knew that where I really wanted to be at was I wanted to be in an operating room. I wanted to be in those type of high pressure type of situations that you'd find a trauma surgeon in. Um, so I just knew that, yeah, this is what my current experience is, which is working with athletes and helping them get to their peak performance. I knew that at my point I had hit kind of the wall as to where I would go to from an athletic standpoint. So there really wasn't that issue of, you know, let me continue my athletic dreams further than this. But from a professional standpoint, you know, I just knew that, um, you know, sports medicine was okay, but what really piqued my interest was, um, was trauma surgery. But funny, once I got into medical school, you know, there's a, you have an opportunity to, you know, join certain clubs, just like you're in college or, um, you know, whatever, if you're in high school, there's all these different clubs. And actually I was the first year representative, um, for the OB club, actually. Um, I just, decided that I wanted to give myself a really um, well-rounded experience. So I said, well, look, how about this? Rather than me going gunning and being a gunner for surgery, let me go in and try to say that I will be interested in something else and see what happens. Um, so I was in the OB club and, you know, it was interesting. And then when I did my rotations in OB, I knew just right there from the beginning, I just knew, I was like, this is, this is not for me. <laughs> when I did my mm. first examination, I was like, yeah, this is, this is just not for me. I don't, this is not where I want to be for the, you know, for my, for the majority of my career. And then from there, it was just solidified that, you know, surgery really was what I wanted to do. And, and, and that's, that's interesting. So when you made those pivotal decisions, and, and fast forward now, you're in medical school and you chose the DO route rather than the MD route. And there's clear, clearly that there's a bit of a distinction between the way certain, um, the way a, a traditional MD or DO will practice, right? What are, can you explain to the viewers those um, differences, right? So a DO, a DO will focus more on the holistic of the patient, right? So... What, 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 what would you say are kind of how has that, that decision shaped your kind of career path and how you treat patients, right? You, you, right instead right. of doing a traditional MD or DO. Right. So I, as, I, as I tell people, um, for people who, are, who don't understand, there is a difference um, between being an MD or what's called an allopathic physician, you know, versus someone who is an osteopathic physician, someone who has a DO. And basically, it's the it's it's basically the philosophy of how we feel about the body. The osteopathic approach is is this under this foundation of believing that the body can heal on its own. Okay, and what we do as physicians, as osteopathic physicians, is we do things to help augment that. Right, that's just the the foundation of it. Whereas with allopathic medicine, and I'm when I'm 
comparing. I'm not comparing that one is better than the other. I'm just simply just stating what the definitions are, what the histories are, and so forth. The osteo, the allopathic uh, approach is that you can use external um, uh, influences to help the body heal. Okay, so um, so for me, you know, going to an osteopathic medical school, it's just it's basically it's it's understanding and studying you know, all of the things that you would do in MD school. It's understanding the pathophysiology, the biochemistry of the body. It's understanding the renal system. It's understanding the pathology, the neurology. But there's also a clinical ac acumen or a clinical uh, aspect of medicine um, that a lot of people aren't familiar with. And that's called basically manual medicine or manipulative medicine. And what you do is what how we're trained is basically there are certain techniques that we can use with our hands to help the body get back into proper function. And the whole notion is, is that if the form or the structure of the body isn't correct, then you can pretty much guarantee you that the function won't be correct. Right. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm, if something mm -hmm. if, if if the structure isn't right, then you you can pretty much bet that the function is not going to be right. And there are certain things that you can do to help manipulate the body to get it back to homeostasis or back to a state of, you know, where everything is good. Um, so not only are we taught that uh, in our studies, but we're also taught to just kind of just think overall. That, and that's where the whole holistic approach comes from. What is the body doing? What is the patient doing? What's going on at home, right? What are the emotional aspects of things? Um, so it's really, when they say holistic, it's really a combination of just understanding your patient, um, but also uh, understanding um, the uh, what's going on with your patient from a, um, from a disease standpoint, and just using a whole bunch of different uh, multitude of options that you can do to treat them. Right. You can use things such as pharmacy, you know, pharmaceutical medications. You can use things such as your hands. Um, you can use things, you know, such as emotional connections. There's just a lot of um, options that we have as osteopathic physicians. Now, um, in general, once you start getting um, into how you actually practice medicine, once you start going past, you know, family medicine, internal medicine, you start getting into the surgery and so forth. You know, it, it becomes really hard to differentiate between an MD and a DO. Um, but basically, you know, they're just different things that we can do, um, you know, from a hand standpoint um, and as well as from a um, just an overall, you know, how we look at a patient um, that we could just get taught in, in osteopathic school. So for me, it was a really good fit. It was where I was mentally um, when I was applying for medical school is what I thought that that's where I wanted to be. I applied both to MD and DO schools, um, got into both, um, but just felt like this school, particularly in Kansas City, you know, really opened up the, 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 the red carpet for me. I felt that this was a place that I was going to succeed. And, you know, for the med students who are listening, if they are listening, pre-med students, or just anybody in general um, who's looking, it's always important to go to some place, go to a school where you feel like you are going to succeed and you feel like the, the institution, the organization, the school's, you know, main goal is to make sure that you graduate um, in the best form as possible. And that's what I felt I could, even though the place was at least a thousand miles away from home, you know, we all talked as a family and we looked at all the different options of the places I got into. And we just felt like this is the best place for you, you know, and they had a, a, a different approach to studying that I never had before in college. I would just study biochemistry separately, organic chemistry separately. Um, you know, whatever subject it was, you would you would study that separately. Where at this school, we did something that's called a systems-based approach. So rather than understanding specific 
um, uh, basic sciences, we would study the neuro, the, for example, if we were going to study the kidneys and the renal system, we would study the anatomy of it. We would study the pathophysiology of it. We would study the pathology of it. We would understand the biochemistry. All of those different basic sciences are all related to that specific system. And for me, that blew my mind. So you, you mentioned really taking the, taking the opportunity to select the best school that's right for you. And one of the distinctions that you mentioned with choosing the DO program is um, around what the new topic is nowadays is considering the whole patient. And part of treating the whole patient is really looking at social determinants of health. And now that's a hot, very hot button. How has that shaped your career, right? I know, I know in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the trauma room, it, it's still... It's that, that the social determinant of health is very important because once you treat the patient and, the, and you got to dismiss the patient now, they got to be at, 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 a, at a home, the continuation of that care, what does that look like? So what has been, has, that, has, has this decision to choose the DO program benefit you better as well as a result of where healthcare is going with social determinants of health? No, um, <laughs> no, I, I think that that, I mean, I think it's really hard to ask um, any medical school to really um, uh, start teaching that stuff and giving you the tools to, well, actually, let me, let me go back and say, it, I think it's hard to, you know, because once you start practicing, you really, you really start to really, quote unquote, practice. You really start to see the things um, that um, you may read about in medical school. And I think that's the best that medical school can give you right now is really help you with cultural competency, helping you understand that not everybody is treated the same. I think those are really huge. Um, in terms of the tools, um, I'm not sure if any medical schools are really doing that right now. If they are, I stand corrected. Um, but I know for a fact my school didn't do that. They did their best to try to you know, help us understand cultural competency. Um, but once you know, I, I went into practice, you know, and particularly with trauma, you know, trauma really is um, the majority of your patients are either young um, or they're very old. Um, and there are a lot of things that you have to consider, um, you know, not just their injury, um, but there are a lot of things that we just don't think about. Right. There's things involved with implicit bias, um, how we treat patients based off of their color. You know, we assume that, you know, uh, people who are black and brown have higher, you know, pain thresholds, or we assume that, you know, they have an easier chance of becoming an addict. So as a result, they don't get the pain medications that they may need to. Um, or we don't think about, you know, just the, like you just mentioned before, what the home situation is um, for our elderly people, for our elderly population. So if, they, if someone has a bunch of broken ribs, you know, maybe the first thing, um, uh, shouldn't be how quickly can we get them back to home, but really just understanding what's going to happen when they go back home, who's going to be able to take care of them, how they're going to be able to, um, you know, you know, do things that are involved with activities of daily living. Um, you know, are they going to be able to return to work? Um, so those are the things with trauma, at least, that I really enjoy, that it's more than just a high and buy. It's really more of a, okay, um, this is what happened to this person. How can we make sure that we get them back on their feet? How can we treat them um, in the most humane way as possible? Understanding that there are um, these things that are already out there, you know, implicit bias and the other factors that I mentioned. Um, so in terms of the training that I got specifically, I don't know if I, if I was really prepared for that more so than me just being an African-American man. Um, as well as going and doing my residency at a large indigenous hospital and understanding that even at a hospital like that, where you have 
a service um, you know that's run uh, mainly by a historically black college, um, Morehouse School of, Me of Medicine, that there were inherent social disparities even within that department. Um, you know, and obviously there was a larger medical school that we shared the hospital with called Emory University. So, you know, obviously there is some implicit bias there also. Um, but it was just really recognizing, you know, that we all have some form in some fashion. We all practice some type of biases. So that really made me a lot more aware of how I take care of my patients, um, particularly patients. You know, if I'm in a rural area, the majority of patients probably won't look like me. Um, so how do I take care of them? What are there any biases that I carry and how I take care of them? And the vice versa, if someone is in an area that are or someone who's in is in a situation where the patients don't necessarily look like them, do they understand them? Do they understand, you know, the lingo that they use? Do they understand um, you know, basically all the things that you just mentioned before, the social determinants that really help provide really good patient care? This stuff is very complex. Absolutely. And and it's and, 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 and I like the fact that you, you have that teaching, the cultural competences teaching, right? Because then that even goes further along. If you look at the way technology is built now, I know you're, you're, you live in, um, in New York. There was a case recently with um, United Healthcare where now implicit bias is being embedded into their technology with mm -hmm. yeah, their AI. <laughs> What are your thoughts around that? Because now it's like implicit bias, not only the, in technology, it's, it's, in the, it's not only in people, now it's in technology too. So it, it becomes very important for cultural competency to be taught, um, it, even outside of the four walls of the hospital, correct? Yeah. I mean, and if you think about it, so basically this program was a program that basically um, I think it alerted doctors that, you know, a patient wasn't doing well if some of these factors existed. And if these but apparently these factors, they didn't take into effect uh, the factors that affected African-Americans, I believe. So basically, like African-Americans would not be allowed um, to be included in the calculations. Um, but either way, whatever the issue was, the ramifications um, were far worse um, than if like an individual physician or individual uh, individual practitioner was practicing implicit bias, right? Because this is something that's going to affect thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of patients, right? And this is a calculation that occurs literally, you know, on a second by second basis. So you can imagine the people who would have been left out of this, this study, because what it would have done is it would have triggered um, additional testing for people who may have needed it. And people who happen to be African-American or black um, would have been left out of this study. It was really um, something that really was like, wow, you know, and it, it really, for me, what it brings it down to is, is that we have to have more diverse voices be or have a seat at the table. Right. It's not just mm -hmm. in it's not just in you know, getting more, you know, minorities into medical school, it's literally having them become some of the decision makers, um, you know, in medical school, having them be the decision makers in residency programs, um, in hospitals, making sure that they are part of the admissions and recruiting, um, mainly because as we see in technology, I don't know if you know, but, you know, I, I, there is one thing that I learned um, that, you know, I don't know if you know, but there is like, when you go to a bathroom and you try to put your hand underneath that hand sanitizer, and you try to get it to work like there are studies that show that this technology does not work with people who have darker palms than people who have obviously fair skin or, you know, whiter palms. And the reason why is that when the technologists or when the coders were programming 
this stuff in, you know, there wasn't this, oh, we don't want, we want this to not work with black people, but it's, they just thought of the samples that they used to program in the different types of hues. They just didn't consider people who had darker hands in there. So now that this, this, this sanitizer is out there and working, you have a white person who puts their hand underneath there, it works. And then you have a black person who puts their hand in there and it doesn't work. Right. So it's really important mm. to make sure that we have differing minds in areas where decisions are being made. That's why for me, I really have, have really, I, I've really jumped on this whole notion with my podcast of, you know, really giving a voice to people who don't necessarily get a seat at the table, right? I really focus on um, minorities. I really focus uh, on women. I really focus on people from the LGBTQ community to come and talk about things that folk that really affect us outside of the hospital. And for me, that's my legacy. I want my legacy to be, I gave, um, you know, I allowed you know, people to have a, a seat at the table, a lot of people to have a voice who we normally don't give them a voice, right? And I feel like we all are better off when we hear a diverse set of voices, right? Just the same way if they had a diverse set of coders, someone could be like, oh, hold on a second, guys. Like you don't have anybody who has, <laughs> you never programmed anybody who has a darker set of hands in here, right? It's just these things that we just don't think about. But when there's someone else in the room who doesn't look like everyone else, it really forces everyone to kind of look at things better. And, and, and you were mentioning around the different sample size with the hand sanitizer, which is so critical because then you, th you think of where technology, we talk about telehealth, um, now the embedded AI technology around telehealth, which is, which is what happened with United Healthcare, right? The triaging of those patients. If they don't have enough sample size of the coder, the programmer don't think of the other type of example, the sample size, then it becomes very dangerous. And then this, this, will, this also go on to the AI components, right? artificial intelligence and machine learning. I own a company called InnoCares, which is a telehealth and wellness platform that connects providers um, with patients. But then there's an AI component to our technology where you can literally take a picture of your, um, the patient, the patient can take a picture of himself and then the algorithm calculates um, and reports the, the, the BMI, all of this rich data, right? And this technology is powered by um, NASA. Um, it, and it's really cool, but the, the, if there's not enough sample size into that tag, then it becomes, used, it becomes worthless. So your point makes so much sense. Uh, and I'm not sure, if you if you you've if you've had even examples or, or sample size around um, using technology like telehealth, um, I've used telehealth before. Um, you know, and you know, even with using telehealth, I think telehealth is an amazing way, particularly um, for populations that um, have a paucity of physicians or a paucity of providers. You know, it's a great way to connect with them. If you know, it may be very difficult for them to get out to see a provider and so forth. But even within the realm of telemedicine and telehealth, like in order to do this, you need, you need really good adequate broadband. And this is where, you know, things even go past not just race, but also class. And, you know, you have a significant portion of the United States, particularly in the middle portion of the United States that doesn't even have adequate quote unquote broadband to maybe even support having telehealth. Right. So you have people who are mm -hmm. on, you know, certain parts of reservations or even parts of just just plain rural areas of the United States that just don't have um, adequate speed to really connect with this stuff. So there's going to be a significant amount of people who are going to be left out of 
something like this, right? So, um, you know, so it's 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 really interesting how you know all of this technology is really helping people in some regards, but also at the same time it could be hurting people in some regards, particularly because ultimately the crutch of all of this technology is really us, right? So if we mm. have if we have certain um, biases in, in in just natural to us, or we have certain things that we just leave out. If we don't consider everything, then the computer is only just going to amplify this, right? It's just going to amplify, you know, everything that we believe and so forth. So um, it's just, it's, I mean, you, you have even with Airbnb, right? Like you figure or that there's a way in which you can kind of take out the, um, the ability of people to discriminate on Airbnb, yet people are able to discriminate on Airbnb to the point where they've created something called Air, you know, was it Air Noir or basically it's an Airbnb for people who are black and brown, mainly because there's been so many attempts at discriminating between um, with technology. So they had to create their own platform. Um, so it's just it's just one of those things where, you know, technology really can help us. Um, but also at the same time, if we're not really wise, if we're not really compassionate, if we're not really thinking about, you know, everyone and having a seat at the table, it really all basically is just amplifying how we really think. And, you know, some of the, the systemic issues that we have right now just becomes on a larger scale. And I absolutely agree with you. So last night, I spent my time last night at GW. GW had a conference um, at the Milgan Public School public health school and it was a rich diversity of clinicians that were there we had psychologists psychiatrists and um it's a rich diversity of clinicians and some of those clinicians look like us and one of the conversations we got into was around um the operate right so this is where technology even and then you think of it at a policy level the opioid, the opioid epidemic. It, it did not become an epidemic until it reached certain neighborhoods, right? <laughs> and those neighborhoods now, it's amplified to an epidemic. But if you take, if you go back to the history of the opioid and prescribing medication, you look at cocaine even. This is a little more of an extreme case with cocaine. Um, the type of, the type of where they were, certain communities were being treated instead of increasing treatment centers and resources around treating those patients that are opioid addicts. Um, or addicted to certain certain types of drugs, incarceration was a treatment center, and that becomes a bit frustrating. And, we, you, and you, when you start talking about the systemic side of um, treating a patient and the, all the social determinants that's around, surrounding them, and those are the points that you are bringing up, and that needs to change. Even with then, in the case of technology too, right? No, I, um, I yeah, I I agree with you, and I and I think you know you know when you talk about you know, for example, the opioid coverage or the opioid crisis, which is huge right now, um, and I'm glad it's getting the attention that it's needed. When you think about how it's being covered versus how, you know, I grew up, you know, I'm 41 um, and I grew up in New York City. I was in Queens, New York during that time when crack was huge. Um, and even though I was young during that time, I still remember how crack was, you know, um, portrayed on movies versus how cocaine was portrayed in movies. And um, it's it just goes back and harkens back to why it's really important that we even from a journalistic standpoint, you know, we talk about technology, we talk about medicine, but even from a journalistic standpoint, it's really important to have diversity in voices, right? Because, you know, it's different when, you know, you have um, journalists who maybe can't relate to people, to certain type of people. So when you write about people who are, um, 
you know, unfortunately going through the crack epidemic, it's written a certain way or it's described a certain way. But then when you have, you know, people who are going through the opioid epidemic, um, you know, and, you know, the subject may look like you, then, you know, it's written a different way. And I'm not saying that this is meant to be malicious in any nature. It's just that when you can identify with people, oftentimes it elicits a certain empathy that comes out. Right. So it's just important mm -hmm. that, you know, even within the realm of journalism and even in the world of um, how we uh, treat certain things like drugs and so forth and 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 this this thing, it's really important to have as many uh, diverse voices, um, diverse decision makers in the room, because, you know, that's the big thing now. It's like, OK, well, where was all of this empathy? Where was all of this keeping people uh, putting people in treatment centers, you know, in the 80s and early 90s when it was ravaging inner city areas, um, as opposed to now when it's ravaging suburbia um, as well as as well as rural and the Rust Belt uh, of the of, of America. So it's it's you know, it's, it's very interesting, you know, but it, it just kind of harkens down to, you know, making sure we have more people who can who identify with uh, or having as many uh, diverse voices as possible. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is a nice little segue to, and it's so important that you, you are versed in so, so many areas, right? And that, that lends to your curiosity. What I'm, learning, what I'm learning through this episode even is that literally you're a highly curious physician. And that, and you continuously learn. That is so amazing. And I think you had on your website where you made a quotation that I am more, in this case here, I'm more than an athlete. In essence, you're more than a physician. So what does that really mean? I'm more than a physician. Yeah. So um, the, the quote is, you know, I'm more than just a doc, right? Um, and yep. it's, it's basically saying that, you know, what we do as physicians is um, unlike anything else that you can, you can you know, make an example with in, in the world, right? Like we have a special relationship with our patients. They tell us things that they may not even tell their loved ones or even their spouses, um, you know, and the ability for us to kind of help them um, through moments of, of need or being sick or what have you um, is very unlike any other situation. Um, but, you know, oftentimes we kind of pigeonhole ourselves into what we do in a clinic or what we do in a hospital. And, we don't really take into account what we can do outside of the hospital and what we can do in effect to affect society as a whole. Um, so that was really something that was really important to me because I just felt like I was just pigeonholed in. And I just wanted to really highlight stories of doctors who are just really fulfilled in what they do. Um, they're not just successful because I, I learned um, in my career, early in my career, that there's a difference. I didn't know that there was a difference between being successful and being fulfilled. I just kind of thought those were all in the same, um, you know, those are all intertwined together, which it's not. Um, so, you know, I had all the the credentials, um, but I didn't necessarily have the fulfillment that I wanted. Um, but I saw other people who had that. And that's kind of started me on this, this journey of talking to docs who were very fulfilled in life. So that the reason I mentioned that is, is, you know, I say that because we all have this opportunity to really help people, um, you know, on a patient by patient basis, but also at the same time, a lot of the issues that we have, we're, you know, we have studied, we are type A personalities to some extent, but we've studied some of the hardest things out there. You mean to tell me that we can't use, you know, some of our knowledge or some of our ability to concentrate or, you know, grasp really hard topics. We can't use that to, you know, help, 
you know, with some of the hardest things that are going on outside of medicine or maybe do things and help people in other parts of the country or in the world. Um, so that's where that quote came from. I'm more than just a doc. Like I can do other things. I'm a mother or excuse me for me. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a husband. I'm a father. Um, I'm a podcaster. You know, I'm a businessman. Um, you know, I am uh, someone who wants to inspire other people where there's others, you know, who are world travelers. There's other people who are, um, you know, they work, you know, with uh, doctors without borders. So that is just that concept of just letting people know, particularly doctors, that, yes, you spent a good 13 to 14 years of your life being a master on a human body. But there's really still more that you can do. And, 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 and you should explore that. Right. And you, you should definitely explore. In your, in your case, you've, you've become a best-selling author. You're, um, you're doing podcasts. And, um, and you're still practicing medicine, but there, there comes a time to how, and, and this is also where technology, you, 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 you sound as though you, you've made yourself so much efficient as well. You, you realize certain areas where technology help you create more time, buy, more, buy you more time. But if we go back to why physicians go through those burnouts, what would you say are some of the, the reasons is it fulfillment? Is it fulfillment? Is it all the things that 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 are the are the underlying issue why physicians go through those burnout? And literally, those burnout are costing us billions. The statistics are the price tag for physician burnout runs at four point six billion dollars annually. That's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of money. Yeah. You know, I I think that to be honest with you, I think the system that we are in is really the biggest culprit, you know, and um, I know that um, there's an article that just came out where that figure $4.6 billion came out and it talked about, you know, some places have chief wellness officers um, and these are, um, you know, physicians or basically, um, you know, people who are, um, have positions where they help, you know, pri uh, uh, providers, you know, really kind of help become, you know, well, so to speak. And, you know, I did more research on what this duty is, what this office is. And basically it, it allows you to really kind of, um, you know, take more time for yourself, really understand, you know, where you fit in the system and, you know, take some uh, opportunities to really refresh yourself. You know, and I actually interviewed um, someone from a, a major hospital system in the East Coast uh, who's a chief wellness officer about this. And, you know, after talking to them, I realized I was like, what, like, it's i understand the 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 intentions of having these chief wellness officers and them helping you to really relax more or you know spend more time with your child or you know all these different things that are really important but if the system won't let you do that then how how effective is this going to be i don't know how to explain if if, if i'm explaining it right basically like you're 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 empowering doctors but you're really not empowering doctors you're telling them to do certain things but you're not giving them the opportunity to do so because there really isn't like oh well the emr system is not great well like the doctors don't create the emr system right like it's it's really mm -hmm. hard for someone it's really hard to convince a doctor to take time off when if they try to take time off they know that their partners are probably going to you know, give them a hard time because now all the work shifts onto their partners. Can you really blame their partners? Right. So it's this system of, that is full of high stress, taking care of more and more patients. There's less autonomy. There's more oversight. There's more critique. There's more, you know, like everything is analyzed to the 10th degree. And not to say that that's not important. That is really important. 
Um, but in a world where you have to see more and more patients, you're trying, particularly in the ER, you got to get people out of the ER in 15 minutes or, or less or 30 minutes or less. Like the system is based off of physicians, which is a human component. And they're treating physicians or corporations treat physicians almost like we're robots. And we're not, you know, and there are people who are going mm. to be able to handle it. Right. There are people who are going to be able to handle it and not complain. But the majority of people are going to have a, a point where they just say, I, enough is enough. I can't do this anymore. I need to take time off or, you know, there's going to be a mistake that's being made. Um, so for me, I really when I read that article and I see those numbers, it's really stagnant. But I think or excuse me, it's really uh, uh, staggering. But the, the most important thing that really makes me think about is that this whole system needs to be revamped. It really needs to be revamped um, because it's it's really a system where, you know, it's a self-fulfilling cycle, right? Where, you know, if mm -hmm. you don't have your partners who completely support you because they're busy, right? And they have things that they need to do because they're under stress, um, then, you know, are you really going to get that support from your partners? Or if you have a hospital that has this, you know, they're trying to compete with another hospital and they're trying to get people out of the ER in a certain period of time. Um, or if they have an EMR system that is so encompassing now, but you have to spend all the significant time documenting, you know, what are you going to do? Tell someone to take a vacation, but they still got a document. Like, how does that, how do those two things correlate? Right. So, you know, the, the key things I think is, is I really feel like there has to be a, a, a reckoning with the way.
Our state of well-being decides our rate of productivity. This is why the health of your employees are important to you like that of an athlete is important to the coach. Even though the access to healthcare is sometimes unaffordable and time-consuming for most people, Marie still cares about her employees' well-being, so she signs everyone up on Innov Cares. Innov Cares is a telehealth and wellness platform that brings affordable healthcare services to people wherever they are. Marie's employees do not need to wait in line to book an appointment with a doctor. All they have to do is grab their phone and get connected to a doctor or any healthcare provider at just a few clicks. They have access to health specialists at the very best price and get the very best lifestyle tips to avoid chronic diseases. Matt, on the other hand, is a soccer coach and has all his players signed up on Innov Cares. Apart from getting the best healthy lifestyle tips, they get connected to the right healthcare provider in case they get an injury and the recovery process is being followed up. Get rewards, join the health tribe, connect health devices, tick your action list and spend more time with a healthcare team with Innov Cares. Download your Innov Cares app on Google Play Store or Apple Store now.